Welcome to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We are an evangelical free church seeking to honor God by making disciples that learn about, love like, and live for Jesus. Amen. Please be seated. Except for our children and students, you may be dismissed to go to your various learning environments. God bless you. We will see you in a few moments. And God bless the teachers as they go as well. Aren't you so thank you, thankful for them, serving the Lord together with us? Um, I need to tell you this morning that I am a minister. I'm a minister. You, some of you laugh because you already knew that. Yeah. What you may not have known is that you likewise are a minister. You are a minister and you have a ministry in the very same way, or perhaps even more so than myself. You may not be the lead pastor of a church, but you are a minister, you have a ministry. I am not Lutheran. I have never been Lutheran. But I have some high respect for many of the things Martin Luther taught and for the ways in which God used Martin Luther. Um, I don't think anyone had a better understanding of Christian vocation. Not for clergy, but for the priesthood of believers. Nobody had a better handle on that than Martin Luther. Martin Luther, in the appendix to his smaller catechism, used a term normally reserved for the clergy, the term holy orders. And he used this term holy orders to include all kinds of callings for all kinds of Christians. Let me give you a few examples. Um, And these are scattered, dispersed throughout many of his writings. Martin Luther said this, a cobbler, a smith, a peasant, each has the work of his trade, and yet they are all alike consecrated priests and bishops. In another place, he said this, the works of monks and priests, however holy and arduous they may be, do not differ one whit in the sight of God from the works of the rustic laborer in the field, Or the woman going about her household tasks, the father washing smelly diapers, the maid sweeping the floor, or the brewer making good beer. Let's hear it from Martin Luther. (laughs) See, for Luther, baking bread, cobbling shoes, changing diapers, were just as much holy orders as preaching in prayer, and I believe we need to recapture this in the North American church. We are such a bunch of consumer Christians. We refuse to participate in the ministry that God has given us as individuals. We, ref- we refuse to come together. Well, I'm just, I've been hurt by the church. I'm against organized religion. Well, guess what? God called us to both. An individual ministry and mission. And together, together as the church, to minister together. You are a minister in 
and beyond your non-clergy day job, whatever that is, and even if you don't get a paycheck, you have a ministry. And you play a profound role in the kingdom of God, in the church of Jesus Christ, and in the mission of the church. In fact, let me just cite uh, the Apostle Paul, what he said to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11 through 12. I love this language because it actually shows both sides of the conversation. He says, God gave some as apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And that's where we go, those are the ministers. There they are. Those are the guys that are responsible. That's why we pay money to the church so those guys can dance and get the work done and they can feed the flock. That is a biblical metaphor, feeding the sheep. But I would argue the larger biblical metaphor is ministers equipping saints to do the work of the ministry in fact that's the next verse god gave some as apostles prophets evangelists pastors and teachers to feed the sheep endlessly and forever no to equip the saints interesting word it's the same word that was used when jesus came across uh peter james and john and andrew they were washing their nets and the word there same word for mending or sewing them back together and that's the word picture here the ministers that we think of with the professional titles and the training and the calling they are here to mend nets and to equip and to wash to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry what's that for for the building up of the body of christ and i would argue that's both quantitative and qualitative building up it's the normal, everyday, down-to-earth Christians that God is so delighted. In fact, um, one of my professors in my doctoral program, George Hunter, a historian, says that you cannot find a single awakening. In 2,000 years of the history of the church, you don't find a single awakening without a lay-led movement. It wasn't just great men and women who were leaders. It was an entire movement of everyday Christians that made the difference in the awakenings throughout the ages and centuries. You are a minister and you have a ministry. But let me ask you this. Who is sufficient for such a calling and a task? That's like an overwhelming weight and burden and responsibility that I just let you know you already have. I don't lay it on you. God's already described it in his word. But to take a highlighter to it and the weight and the burden that your character, the way you, you uh, do your life and relationships, your integrity, all these things matter to your ministry as a minister. Who is sufficient for these things? Furthermore, the life in ministry is an arduous and difficult life. It's discouraging at times. Sleepless night, nights and endless labor. How will you succeed? How will you even survive? Because there are times that the difficulties... The 
The price tags will exceed our abilities, energy, pain tolerance, or creativity. And I'll tell you, Paul the Apostle was very acquainted with this kind of labor and intensity and, and adversity. Uh, just to cherry pick something out of his epistle, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he says this to the church in Corinth. For we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we have received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So why do I read that? And what I want you to see there is the kind of sacrificial service that this minister, in his ministry, experienced is not reserved only for apostles. In fact, did you catch the, third, the uh, uh, plural language? Paul's not just saying, I, me, and my. He used we, our, our us, and ourselves. So there were more with Paul in that experience of taking the gospel to different cities in Asia. And the price tag was enormous. Furthermore, in the book that we're actually studying, 2 Timothy, we read this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12. Indeed, all those who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted harassed hounded dog and that's not always just by individuals say i hate jim roden i'm coming after him this is just the, the the arduous life of ministry that is here for all of us so i say it again who is sufficient for these things how do we believe that we're going to succeed in our individual and corporate mission let alone just survive and the answer is the same way Timothy would succeed. The same way Timothy would survive. This morning we are back in 2 Timothy. We're actually now into chapter 2. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and open there. 2 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7. You have a set of notes in your worship folder as well. I encourage you to, to follow along in that. But let me just get, give, give you a running start of... The, uh, the, the context and place of writing and, and ministry, what Paul was intending to accomplish with this epistle, his final words, by the way. They were his final words written from a cold, dark, lonely Roman dungeon, a dungeon that he would not escape. Second Timothy is a clear, intense, and urgent call to Timothy to persevere in ministry despite adversity, difficulty, and suffering. In fact, here's just a few quick quotes from chapter 1 that we just finished, and then I'm going to grab one from the end of the book. Fan into flame. Do not be ashamed. Share in suffering. Follow the pattern of sound words. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. And then from the end of the book, Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Why? Because lives are at stake. Individuals, eternal zip code 
is on the line and the very future of the movement of Christianity and the church of Jesus Christ hangs in the balance. The next text that we come across that we're reading today, verses 1 through 7, resumes the call from God the Holy Spirit through Paul to Timothy and ultimately to us. And it's a call to spirit-empowered passion. Spirit-empowered boldness. Spirit-empowered suffering and following and guarding. And here's what we read. 2 Timothy 2, 1-7. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is a hard-working farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. According to this final verse, think it over. The Lord will give you understanding. Paul is encouraging Timothy to slow down. Take a deep breath. Carve out some quiet, ponder, meditate before the Lord on these seven verses. Paul's promise is that God's spirit would open up his understanding, not only to the meaning of this text, but the implications and applications of this text for him, his ministry, in all who would come after him for us. And I'm going to be honest, I've actually, I remember it was 1991. I'm out of college and I'm living back home at, at my parents' house in the Arcadia area, East Phoenix. And I remember reading through 2 Timothy and coming to this spot in this verse. I probably can find the journal entry. That, that verse 7 was so powerful for me to stop and slow down and say, Lord, what are you saying to Timothy? What are you saying to me? What are you saying to your people? It's been 33 years of pondering these seven verses, and I hope this morning you will join me. I'm not saying that I arrived or I figured it out. I'm just saying, let, join me as we unpack these verses together. But can we just stop and say, Lord, we want to be in a mood and a presence of mind and heart that we're, we're not just, oh, when, are, when is he going to get done? When are we going to get out of here? How many more songs do we have to sing? Or, or uh, perhaps even a little bit better, did he, is he engaging? Is, do I like that story? Lord, help us to be in a, in, a, in a pattern of thought and heart that goes, this is your word. We're looking in on a conversation between Paul and Timothy, but Lord, all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for us. Help us to ponder. And Holy Spirit, would you show us what you have for us today, both as individuals in our individual callings and ministries, but also corporately together as the church, the body of Christ. 
We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to begin not with verse 1, but with verse 2. Why do we want to begin with verse 2? And the reason why is because I believe verse 2 is a succinct statement that encapsulates the entire emphasis of the entire epistle. In fact, I would argue that it is a succinct, succinct statement that encapsulates the entire meta-narrative of the New Testament. And I would take it one step beyond that. We want to look at verse 2 first because it is a succinct statement that encapsulates the entire meta-narrative of the entire Holy Bible. And what is that meta-narrative? Psalm 134, for one generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. And I believe in this 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul is inviting Timothy and ultimately us to lead in the effective transmission of the faith to future generations. I'll say it again. We are to lead in the effective transmission of the faith to future generations. Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, this was not a Gnostic message. This was not a secret society that only the elite insiders could know about. This was a public sharing of the truth of the gospel. Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, it was a public declaration. These things, the content and the character, the message of the gospel, these things entrust to faithful men and women so that they may be able to teach others also. When you look at this, you see four generations of faithfulness. Paul, Timothy, faithful men, others. And the call is to entrust and to teach. And that's where I get the word lead. Lead. All de definitions of leadership at some point come down to the final definition, which I would argue is influence. There may be more offices, titles, magnitude of impact for influence and leadership, but it all comes down to your impact on others. And all of us have it to a greater or lesser degree. We have it as individuals, we have it together as the local church. And we are to use that influence to ensure the faithful transmission of the gospel, not just the theology, but the character and goodness of the gospel message, to ensure the transmission of that gospel to another generation, to pass the baton on and to give them the same mandate which we were given, to do everything possible as individuals and together 
to ensure the downstream transmission of the gospel for generations to come, to make disciples of every nation. This is the Great Commission. It shows up in every gospel in various forms. The one that we typically go to, Matthew 28, verse 18 through 20, Jesus, before he ascended, said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples, not converts only, not followers only. Make disciples, learners of the content and the character and the ministry of Christ. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them everything. That's not actually what that says. It's teaching them to observe It's not so that they could pass a theology exam. It's so that they could actually pass life. And the practical living and serving for Christ in their family of origin, in uh, their singleness, in marriage, in the household, in their occupation. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. And then I love the promise, and behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This was the mission that Paul was so fiercely committed to. This was the mission that Paul, in many ways, was spearheading from the time of his Damascus Road encounter with the risen Christ. This was the mission that Jesus, uh, that, that Paul was so committed to training young men like Timothy and Titus in. And as Christians, you and I are a part of the same lineage. Paul, Timothy, faithful men and women, us, insert name. We have an opportunity to be faithful as individuals and together. Let me ask you for a moment. What part of the mission has Christ asked you to carry? What's your call? What is your ministry? Individually, outside these walls, as you go back into your community, your neighborhood, your Friend circle, what is your ministry beyond these walls? Secondly, what's your spiritual gift that you are to participate together with other believers? And are you participating? That's that's partly up to us and the leadership to try and figure that out and to encourage and to model. But you have a responsibility to, to step into it. And to say yes to the Lord. Who has the Lord placed in your path to influence for the the gospel? Family, spouse, children, nephews and nieces, neighbors, co-workers, friends, and in your church. Well, here's the second thing we want to look look at. Going back to verse 1. And I would say this. Because the mission is difficult, costly, and even dangerous at times... Timothy would need to rely on the grace given to him by the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Holy Spirit, and not on his own personality. And so it is for us 
as well. That we are not only to lead in the effective transmission of the gospel for future generations, but we are to do it by learning to lean on Jesus for spiritual, empowered faithfulness. Lean on Jesus for spiritual, spiritually empowered, spirit-empowered faithfulness. Because the mission is impossible. It's impossible. It's way too much for anyone to do in their own strength. Think of all that Paul was asking of Timothy and entrusting to Timothy. He was inviting him into a life of continual stress and adversity and at times deep and profound disappointment. And some had already defected from the faith. In fact, that's immediately preceding 2 Timothy 2.1. We read about three guys, Fugalas, Hermogenes, and Onesiphorus. And he, he, Paul is asking Timothy to compare and contrast his own heart and faithfulness to these three men and this is how he begins the text we're looking at you then in light of these other three you then my child be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus the word there in dynamo it's where we get the word dynamic and dynamo it with with dynamism Dunamis is the root word, which is where we get the word dynamite. It means power. Dynamite's construction, destructive and chaotic. This is constructive and, and meaningful. And he is asking Timothy to receive that strengthening. And in fact, in the, the verb tense, present, passive, imperfect, the idea with, with mentioning that is that Timothy is to receive it. He's not to muster it or grit it up and grit it out. And it doesn't come all at once in one final dose. But at various intervals, he must return and be strengthened. Be strengthened by the grace. That's a gift. That's what the, the root word means, charis. It's a gift, an endowment. It's something beautiful. Be strengthened, receive it, the, the gift that is in Christ Jesus. Philip D. Jensen, about this verse, says it this way. He's inviting Timothy, his beloved child, to a dangerous mission and entrusting him with a great responsibility. Timothy is to visit his mentor who has been imprisoned for the very responsibility that Paul is entrusting to him. Timothy, I'm going to lose my head for being faithful in this ministry. And I'm asking you to come visit me and risk your own head as well. And guess what? We don't do that in our own strength, do we? It's likely that most of us aren't going to lose our head. We're probably not going to die as martyrs for the Christian faith. But will we live as martyrs? And when it's time to get off of that chair... And to go across the street and talk to your neighbor 
when it's time to pick up the phone and make a difficult but necessary Christ-honoring phone call, when it's time to step forward and say, I will lead that project, knowing that the last three leaders, they struggled with that project, and there's a price to be paid. And you don't say yes in your own strength. You don't dig deep. You don't muscle it up and grit it out. You say, hey, Lord, if you've called me to this, I'm going to lean heavily into you and your spirit. I need your empowering. This courage, this grit, this endurance is not found in ourselves, but in Christ Jesus. Um, this has been reflected already in chapter 1. Check this out. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. He says, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. By the power of God. By the power of God. Not yourself. Don't just be a tough guy. Don't just prove it. This is not about your ego and achieving something in your own flesh and strength, but by the power of God. And then a couple of verses later, 2 Timothy 1.14. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Guard the good deposit entrusted to you. Not just guard, 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 guard. Jim's going to guard it. Guard, 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 guard. It's by the Holy Spirit's strength. God's strength, the Holy Spirit's strength. And in this text, 2 Timothy 2.1, the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Did you catch it? All three members of the Trinity are involved. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I want you to ponder this. Because ministry is costly. And difficult, and you pay a price tag to get up out of that chair and say yes. But I want you to consider the power of the triune Godhead that is not only available to you, but the promise that the triune Godhead indwells you. That the power needed. The very presence of God is already within you. You know that feeling when you're triggered like, oh no, not that event again. Oh no, he's asking me to have that conversation. Oh no. And you go, I'm tired. I don't want to. I want to rest. Ah, but God's calling. And you reflect, I have the power of the infinite, almighty creator of the universe within me, giving me strength to do this next right thing. And you draw on that strength. You, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. For God gave us a spirit not of power, or uh, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. We already have it. So we leverage that. Lead in the effective transmission of the faith to future generations. Lean on Jesus for spirit-empowered faithfulness. And then finally this morning, the metaphors, the illustrations. Paul gave Timothy three rapid-fire illustrations in, in a succession. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. And my first question uh, that came out of staff meeting, it was Sarah Ross, um, saying, what, instead of thinking about how these are different, how are they actually First and foremost, the same. The soldier, 
the athlete and the farmer? Well, all of them understand toil. Self-control, which was already mentioned in chapter 1. All of them know how to strive and to struggle. All of them know how to labor. To discipline themselves for something worthwhile. And so that's what we want to talk about. We want to learn how to labor in our callings. Labor in our callings. Maybe you've heard the statement, the phrase, let go and let God. Just let go and let God. I believe that was uh, made popular by uh, power of positive thinking theologian Norman Vincent Peale in, in a book that he wrote many years ago. Let go and let God. And, and the answer, is that a true statement? And the answer is yes and no. If, if what he meant by that is, is coming under the lordship of Jesus Christ as a Christian, releasing uh, my demands on my life and for my life, and surrendering to the lordship of Jesus, I say yes, let go and let God. Unfortunately, the way that statement was used was kind of a loosey-goosey, relax, and just kind of hang loose. And God's just going to pull it off. You know? Just let it happen, man. And that is not what we see coming from the New Testament. That yes, we have to lean on Christ for spirit-empowered ministry. We have to draw our strength, but guess what? We all have to show up. We have to show up. We have to say yes. And, and one of the things that I believe the Holy Spirit does in us is gives us the desire to spend and be spent for a worthy cause. Love drives us to serve others even when it is costly. This is what Paul would say in 1 Timothy, the first letter, 1 Timothy 4.10, for to this end we toil and strive. That doesn't sound like let go and let God. Why do we toil and strive? He goes on to say, because we have set our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And then in, an, in another place, Colossians 1, 28 through 29, talking about passing along the faith effectively back to the meta-narrative of the New Testament and the entire scriptures. He says, him, Jesus, we proclaim, warning everyone. That might be evangelism, warning everyone and teaching everyone. That might be discipleship, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. So we got both parts now. His strength and his power that is already in me. But I've got to show up and I've got to give. And there are times, listen, rest and Sabbath and recreation are so important and I believe that Jesus of Nazareth took part in all those things, and they're really important. And there are times and seasons for rest and recreation. But they serve a greater purpose. 
and that is so that our cups would be full and we could minister to others with a whole heart. We have to learn to labor. That's how they are alike. How are they unique? What nuance do they bring to our understanding? And man, if, if, if you could grab one of these, whatever it is that you need today to find courage and strength and grit to do that which God is asking you to do, that would be the joy of my heart. You might not be all three. It might be just one of these, but check it out. We are first to labor in our calling as a disentangled, singularly focused soldier. He says, share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. So we think of suffering, but he said that before. Yeah, we're supposed to hug that. Uh, pay the price for a worthy cause. But he goes on to explain even better what he's getting at with this metaphor. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Verse 4 calls for the single-minded focus, a, a, a united heart, a supreme desire and, and uh, focused affections on a, the desire to please God. Now let me say something. Entertainment, wealth, leisure, travel, politics, retirement planning are all a part of life. And we all have to pay attention to them. Things that we do, even a part of the life of a Christian minister. Paul is not calling for a complete abstinence of these things. For Paul himself was a part of the tent design and manufacturing industry. I wouldn't be surprised if he was really good at his craft. And that he continued to try to get better at tent making. So what is he talking about? I believe it's found in this word, entanglement. Entanglement. Empleco. It means to braid or weave together. And that a good soldier, while there might be time for R&R, &R, there might be time to take care of business and make a phone call back home or write a letter. But to be enmeshed and to have so many concerns and passions bringing distraction on the battlefield is bad. Not only for the, the, the uh, army at war, not only for the person to the right and the left, but bad for the soldier. It's bad for the mission. It's bad for the man. So it's this entanglement. What are we to make of this? How do we... How do we do this in life, whether it's health and fitness and nutrition and sleep and play and recreation? Some people raise these to the level of holiness. Say, but we got to do this. This is like, oh, and I can find verses, and this is what godly people do. Yes, yes, but those cannot rival the ministry and the mission with effective transmission of the gospel to another generation. They serve in a subservient role. They support the greater 
mission of getting the gospel to others. And I would describe how we are taught from the scriptures to engage in all these things, these lesser things. Important, but not the main thing kinds of things. And I would describe it as a detached engagement. Meaning there's a, a heart detachment, like this is important, got to take care of it, I sort of like it, but it is serving a greater mission in my life, and that greater mission takes up the whole of my heart. So I'm semi-attached, or maybe very much attached from this task that I have to, I got to do my taxes. You're going to think I'm weird, I, I sort of dread it, but when I get into it, I'm really excited about it. I can geek out on it, okay, but I've got to remain emotionally detached, pay what I need to, render to Caesar what's, what is Caesar's, or receive back from Caesar what Caesar says I can have, but that's not why I'm here. The roof got ripped off our building. We might come out ahead financially in the end, but that's not why we're in business. We're not in business to have better ceilings or roofs. We're in business to make disciples. And so it is with our individual ministries and callings. Paul would say this in 1 Corinthians 7 about this detached engagement idea. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. By the way, he had just told them not to get divorced. So he's not saying get divorced or give her the cold shoulder. He's saying in comparison to the mission, your marriage serves the mission, not the other way around. So you have a wife, live as though you had none. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as if they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. You get the picture? A detached engagement. i got to take care of this. I've got to fulfill this. This is my call. I've got to do these things. But these serve the greater purpose of my life and world history. The redemption of rebellious mankind back to the Father. All other pursuits are either the laboratory of gospel living, the mission field for gospel living, or supporting ministry, the ministry of gospel living. This is why the writer of Hebrews, and I, I wouldn't be surprised if it was Paul. No one knows for sure, but it's, it sounds a lot alike theologically. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin that so easily entangles. Interesting word, isn't it? Um, by the way, it's not just the sin that entangles. There are other things that aren't necessarily sin. Lesser things that become ultimate things entangle us in the mission. So we got to lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So there is the disentangled, singularly focused soldier. Here's the next metaphor. The disciplined, ethical athlete. The disciplined, ethical athlete. 
An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to his ru the, the rules. According to history, athletes that, that competed in the Isthmian Games, those were more famous than the Olympic Games, by the way. The Isthmian Games, before competing at the Isthmian Games, they had to take an oath before the emperor and declare that they had done the, the necessary 10 months of rigorous athletic training before arriving in order to be pre-qualified for the games. So there was an oath. There were rules before you even showed up to the games that must be kept. And in addition to that, now you're playing the games and you must keep those rules also. So it is for ministers... For us in ministry, we must keep God's rules. This was Paul's ambition. We read in 1 Corinthians 12, or I think it's 9. I might have gotten that wrong. But do you not know that, that in a race, all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. That's the 10-month oath. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable one. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Paul recognizes that within his own flesh, he has appetites and ambitions that if acted upon would be breaking the rules of Christ's morality for ministers. And he is rough on himself because he does not want to be disqualified. And neither do I. How about you? He was an American hero. He was a cycling hero. His Tour de France wins did more for the cycling industry in the United States of America than any other cyclist. He was a cancer survivor and an, and an inspiration to millions. He's gone. Oh, he's still alive, but we don't hear about him. His name is Mud. It was one of the most famous sports scandals of all times. Drugs, bullying, cheating, accusations, lies, and disgrace. His name, Lance Armstrong. Yep. He ruined Greg LeMond. A real hero, by the way, who kept the rules. And you know, we can line up dozens of men in the scriptures, dozens who didn't keep the rules, and for that reason, they end in disgrace. Just a few. Samson, Saul, Solomon, and we could go on and on and on and on and on. They did not finish well. And unfortunately, we can line up superstar pastors and theologians and book writers in the last two decades. Ravi, Rob, Josh, Bill, Mark. You could probably say their last name. And that's just the beginning of the list. Men who said, yeah, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it my way, and I'm going to break the rules. Jesus said this in Luke 12, nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. 
Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. And whatever you had whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. We must have a single-minded focus to please the master. But secondly, we must keep the rules even when you know you won't be caught in this lifetime. You must keep the rules because God is watching. And he is keeping the record. Here's the third one, a driven, expectant farmer. It is a hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. It doesn't matter what season. It doesn't matter what the weather. It doesn't matter if he feels like it or if she feels like it. The farmer has to get up and do the hard work. And guess what? He or she has no guarantee of the outcomes. They have no guarantee that the crop is going to come up and produce a harvest. They've just got to get up, get her done, and trust the Lord for the future. And I've said it before, but rest is important. Sabbath is important. Jesus took time away, but I need to say to myself, you say whatever you need to, but I need to say to myself, hard work like the farmer is good for me. It will not kill me. It's what I was made for, and it is the good life. And hard work for the benefit of others is even more so. For the gospel, for the souls of others, for the spiritual growth of others, it is a very worthy cause to give myself for. Paul said this in Galatians 6-9, let us not grow weary. Let us not get tired. Let's not grow weary of doing good for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. I wonder how often we give up just before the payout and what's the payout that's an interesting idea this farmer is the first to share of the crops so what is the share what is this payout jesus when he was ministering to the samaritan village he skipped lunch he ministered to a woman who had had five husbands and was living with someone not her husband she turned and embraced Messiah as her savior, went back to the village, and hundreds of Samaritans were coming out to him. The disciples came up with lunch, and he says to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. They scratched their heads and said, did someone already get them a sandwich? What are you eating? He was talking about the mission of the gospel, reaching this lost Samaritan woman and this lost Samaritan village was feeding his soul. In a few verses later, he says this about this same mission, this same ministry of giving ourselves as a hard worker, hardworking farmer for others. Jesus said the harvesters are paid good wages. The harvesters are paid good wages. And the fruit they harvest is people brought to eternal life. And that is a worthy cause. It's worth getting up out of bed at 5 a.m. It's worth extra innings. It's worth sacrifice. This morning as we just land this text, this passage, this talk, I want you to take inventory 
First off, do I, I want to ask you the, the burdens, the responsibilities, the things being asked of you. Does it feel too heavy? Does it feel like it's too much? Because the first invitation would be to lean into the power of the Holy Spirit within you if you are in Christ. If you're not in Christ, come to Jesus. Receive the gift of salvation, the forgiveness of sins, and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But if you're in Christ, are you learning his voice? Are you learning his leading? Are you leaning into him and depending upon his strength? For what God has asked you to do. Secondly, how are you showing up? How are you embracing your call? Are you willing to sacrifice? Are you single-minded or are you entangled? How about your private life? Are there secrets? Are there skeletons in the closet? No one else sees them, but God sees them. You're breaking the rules. Is there a need for repentance and confession? And finally, are you willing to show up no matter what the season, no matter what the weather, and scatter those seeds for the kingdom of God? That one day we might hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in little, be in charge of much. Can I pray? Father, thank you for these words. Jesus, thank you for coming, embodying and fulfilling every single part of this and doing it perfectly. Thank you for Paul, the one who once hated Jesus and the church, who wrote this letter. Thank you for Timothy, who we know from history, actually finished well. Thank you for faithful believers that have passed the message along, even when it was costly. And Lord, would you encourage us and teach us how to walk in that same path until you return. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to Journey Church Tucson Sermon Podcast. We'd love to have you join us in person on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. You can find out more about us at journeyefc.org.